0: This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations, all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those ten tracks was hosted by Disciple First Ministries with Craig Etheridge and his team. Here's audio content from Disciple First and their track called Transitioning a Church to a Disciple-Making Focus. So we talked about the
1: product, the end product of your church is to make a disciple. A disciple is the end product. That's what you're trying to make. A 3D disciple, which is what we just talked about. What is a disciple? And you need to be sure that you craft a clear, uh, quantifiable definition of what a disciple is. You have to know, I'm committed to doing Jesus-style ministry, and I'm committed to a definition of a disciple. Okay? Now the question becomes, how do I make that? Okay? Once I, once I have a product in mind, how do I make that? Most churches are committed to Programs, right? Amen? Amen. We love these things. Uh, but if you don't know what you're making, then any good program will do. And and so, um, you're, in fact, there, you know, there are whole um, companies just designed to crank out programs that you can use because it doesn't really matter what the program is because you're anyone will do because you have no particular end product you're trying to make. So every program is a good one, and so that's how most churches operate. Before I go any further, I wanted to show you a picture of my, my family here. Uh, this is uh, my wife Liz here in the middle, and uh, she and I met when we were 10 years old. All right? So uh, we went through middle school, high school together, high school sweet, sweethearts, and uh, then we married while we were in college. I went to Texas Tech. University. Guns up. All right, Red Raiders. Uh, uh, Over here on this side, this is my daughter, Leabeth. She's at at Baylor University. She's a senior at Baylor University right now. And then this is my daughter, Abby, who is um, a freshman at Dallas Baptist University. And I really don't know who this guy is. He just snuck in the picture. No, not really. Uh, This is her boyfriend. All right. But he looks like he could be related because he's got the dark hair. It uh, looks like it, but uh, anyway, that's my uh, family. I wanted you guys to get to know know them, and uh, they're praying for you uh, and for me this weekend. Uh, so, when we talk about uh, programs, um, what what's what's frustrating is that the parachurch world has understood this a lot quicker than the church world has. Uh, back in the fifties, you know, the churches were not focused on disciple making. And so you had a growth of parachurch organizations. So call out some of those. Navigators. Awana. Yeah. Did you say Awana? Yeah. Somebody said Awana. Campus Crusade. Youth for Christ. Yeah. Young, Youth for Christ. Yeah. University. I mean, lots of these great organizations. And what would happen is they had a clear end product of mine, and everything that they did was moving them intentionally toward that end product. And consequently, they had great success, but uh, we don't see that in the local church. We tend to be just operating programs that are good, men's, women's, children, uh, singles, married, whatever the program is, but not necessarily intentionally designed for uh, producing this end product. If anything, it's designed to produce the win, which is numerical growth, not necessarily spiritual growth or making... Uh, disciples. Uh, the early church was a disciple making machine, right? Uh, the local church today is almost abandoned disciple making. And I would like to say kind of like Esau sold his birthright for porridge. In many ways, the local church has sold the birthright that Jesus gave us to make disciples and sold it for church growth. And now we're realizing that that's porridge. And it's not winning the next generation. So now we're going, oh, you know, these, you know, kids are leaving the church. You know, we got, they're sounding the alarms is because we have abandoned what we were given to do by Jesus. And that is to make disciples and make disciples. And so what we have to do is we have to come back and ask the question, how did Jesus make disciples? Okay. Uh, Let me just make a quick comment before I dive into the details of this to talk a little bit about the difference between discipleship and disciple-making. I'm really not just parsing words here or splitting hairs. There really is a difference. Uh, The Navigators recently uh, put out a 2015 State of Discipleship document. any of you all see that? Okay, it's a multi-page document that talks about discipleship. There's a big survey. Uh, that they they commissioned uh, a survey group to do. Basically, their definition of a, disi- a discipleship is pretty much any process of spiritual growth. Discipleship is relegated to anything that helps people grow. Right. So we do discipleship. We do groups. We do discipleship. We do. You know, this, that, the other, any program that helps people grow is dumped into the bucket of discipleship. Yes? I mean, I, when I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations. Oh yeah, we do discipleship. Well, tell me what you do. Oh, we have groups. We have Sunday school. We have, we have men's breakfast. We have women's teas. We have, you know, we have all this stuff. And all that is dumped into discipleship because there's no end product. So any program is then labeled discipleship when we're all good, uh, but it doesn't produce those results. Here's here's something we need to think about. Discipleship is not just hanging out together. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of guys say, "Well, that's what discipleship is." Here's some differences, some distinctions. You might want to write these down. Uh, discipleship is a part of the process. When they say discipleship, well, we do evangelism, then we do discipleship. So discipleship is kind of a part of the process, right? The term discipleship is, but disciple-making is the whole process. You understand that? So discipleship, which, by the way, is a, wor- a word that Jesus never used. Jesus never used the word discipleship, nor did he use the word evangelism, okay? Uh, we had this big rift between evangelism and discipleship. Ship. Right? And, uh, what we said is this is winning people to Christ. This is developing people in Christ. Okay? And some people say, well, I'm really in more to evangelism. No, I'm really in more to this In fact, we have a whole church that go, well, we're an evangelism church. If you really want to grow, you need to go to the other church down the street. And yet I mean, I've sat in churches that said that. We're growing too fast. We're just into evangelism. We get somebody else to take care of Then I've other churches say, well, we don't really do evangelism very well, but boy, you come to us saved. Woo, we will help you. Right? We will help you in discipleship. But Jesus knew no distinction between these. Jesus knew disciple making, which included both helping people know Christ and plus helping people grow in Christ. That equals a disciple. Okay? So that, that is a very important distinction. Discipleship usually doesn't have an end in mind. We're just going to keep meeting. Disciple making has a clear end in mind of a reproduced, reproducing disciple. Discipleship is usually heavy on knowledge, how much we know. Disciple making is heavy on practice and behavior and obedience. Discipleship usually ends up, ends when the Bible study is over. Disciple making does not end until there is multiplication. And we really want it to the third and fourth generation. Okay? So there is a difference. And so when you hear people talk about discipleship, from now, this point forward, your ears will perk up and you will ask more questions about what do they mean by that? Because there is a difference here in terminology, and I think as you as you ferret these things out, you tease these things out and you begin to lead, you need to know these differences. How did Jesus make disciples? That's a very important uh, question, and we've got to get a handle on that. Turn back to Matthew 28. I want to show you Jesus' plan for making disciples, how He did it. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, "...all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay? So what is the command? What's the divine imperative? Make disciples. Make disciples. So this is what we're trying to make, right? This is the equal sign, okay? We're trying to make a disciple, okay? So what are the, uh, there are some participial phrases there, that that give indication to the process. What is the first first uh, phrase that we need to look at? Okay. Well, let's back up a little bit. He said, "Go." All right. Go, go, go. Make disciples. So uh, literally, it's translated as "you are going." All right. So there's an ongoing nature to that. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Jesus uh, said, "I've come to seek and save that which is lost." Jesus said, "Praise the Lord of Harvest that so He would send forth laborers to go into the harvest field." All right, so this go indicates going to share the gospel, going to um, people that don't know Christ. Okay. The next one is what? What was it? Baptize them. So this idea of baptism here was not just um, just a matter of getting them wet, but it was a matter of identification. You know, baptism is identification with Christ and identification with Christ's people, right So public baptism uh, was is very important because it identifies you as a follower of Jesus and identifies you with Jesus' people. You do that in community with other believers, okay So go was the first baptize then what's the next one? Okay. Teaching them to what? Okay. So, I'm going to... You know, we love to say teach, right? But it's really... Is, it's not teaching them to obey. It's teaching them to obey. <laughs> we got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> right? So, we teach, 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 but nobody's obeying anything. That's, that's the problem. The emphasis is not on teaching. The emphasis is on obedience. So, I'm going to put teaching there, but I really don't want to. I put OBEY in all caps. I'm going to circle that. Okay? So, teaching them to obey, what? What does it say? All that what? All have commanded. What did he command? Make disciples, right? You all with me? So he commanded them to make disciples. So implied in this is teaching them obedience to disciple making. So there is an implied fourth stage. And that is multiplication. He said, I want you to obey my commands. And that is to make disciples. To make disciples. So what you have here is a four step step process of jesus embedded in matthew 28 the cool thing about matthew 28 is you have both the product and the process all in one statement i mean it is so cool that jesus our master teacher can put it all in one simple statement here's the product make disciples here's the process as you are going then baptized they will cross the faith line somewhere right around in here They're going to come to faith in Jesus, you're going to baptize them, you're going to teach them to obey, and you're going to send them out to multiply. Okay? Y'all with me so far? All right, so you're starting to get the the process of how Jesus made disciples. We're going to get to programs in just a minute, so hold on. Okay? So, if you're looking at that, uh, I remember the first time I saw that, I said, okay, well, that, that totally makes sense you got to go share the gospel, help them cross the faith line, baptize them, teach them to obey, and then help them to multiply. And when you do that, then you have made a disciple, a fully oared person that is devoted to Christ, that is developing, and that is deployed into the mission of Jesus. And that, that's how you make a disciple. Okay. Now, here here's a cool thing that I learned. A- as I began to study the life of Christ, I discovered that you could overlay Jesus's ministry on top of this grid, and that's exactly what he did. I mean, this this was like an eye opening moment for me. Um, you know, uh, I'm looking for my bag. Let's see. Where, oh, here it is, right here. Um, Dan talks a lot about uh, the harmony of the gospel. Do you guys have a copy of this? Uh, really, I, this is the Thomas and Gundry uh, New American Standard Version 1. Uh, this thing has been chewed on. The, the spine's coming off of it. It's been all marked up. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in this one. The interesting thing about the harmony is that it takes the Gospels and puts them into chronological order. So you can actually start to look at the life of Christ in the order in which it took place, in chronology, and begin to put together how did Jesus actually create a movement of multiplication. I highly encourage you to buy one of these um, and to get it. And what I'm going to do is you can take the key pivot points I'm going to give you today and you go back and read this and this will come alive to you. What did Jesus do in year one? What did he do in year two? What did he do in year three? What did he do in year four? What did Jesus do? How did he produce these disciples that that turn the world upside down. Uh, so a lot of what I'm going to share with you is coming out of this. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to give you some key pivot points. I had a, a, a lady that taught church history to me one time, and she said, I teach church history like I build a fence. She said, you put the post down, and then you attach the details in the middle, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the key pivot points, the key posts, the the... The, the points that indicate a move to another phase, and then you will have those now, and then when you go back and read the Scripture in chronology, you know what le- what he did in this phase, what he did this phase, this phase, this phase. Do y'all, does that make sense so far? Okay, if I'm not making sense, raise your hand and go, that totally did not make sense, all right? I graduated from Texas Tech. I understand that uh, I may not make any sense, okay? So, uh, y'all will stay with me, all right? All right, so let's uh, let's take a look at this uh, the first stage, now I'm going to tell you how our church has, um, we, we've taken these concepts and we've built over it, laid over it a certain terminology, okay? So I'm going to show, share that with you. The first one is we take this first phase and we call this the explore phase. Okay, you're going out, you're sharing the gospel, you're helping people that are exploring the claims of Christ, Okay. Now, when you when you dive into uh, the life of Jesus, um, he he really began this phase in uh, John one thirty nine. John one thirty nine. So this is your key pivot uh, for this phase. This is uh, how he is moving people in into this phase. Okay. Uh, John one thirty nine. In fact, just turn with me. I want you to see it in your own Bible, so you can mark it. You know, I'm not making this up. John 139, Jesus has already uh, been baptized and come back from the wilderness, and John the Baptist is pointing him out. And at first, he comes back, John the Baptist says, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who I said, uh, after me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. Alright, right, so he's going, that's the guy. Alright, right, nothing happens. Drop down to verse 35. The next day, again. John was standing and two, with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, this is deja vu all over again, right? He is, He's saying the same thing. He's the Lamb of God. And he said, watch this. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. These are the first followers of Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? What do you want? And they say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. Come and see. Come and see. This is a, a key phrase here. Come and see. Okay. This is helping the explorers here. All right. Come and see, uh, what is happening here. Now, if you continue reading from there that Jesus, uh, found, uh, Andrew found Peter in verse 42, and down in verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, son of John. Uh, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So uh, there's John and Andrew. Then they find Peter. That makes how many followers so far? Three. Okay. And then uh, you continue reading. And Jesus finds Philip in verse 43. Because they all were in the same form The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip. And he said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city where Andrew and Peter were from. So, they all hung out together. They all lived in the same area. So, they've got John, Andrew, Peter, Philip. So, they have four. Okay. Then Keep reading. Then Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a little trash talk between little towns. Right? I grew up in West Texas, and Crest didn't like playing Tulia, and they would, you know, trash talk. All right, so a little trash talk between them, and Philip says to him, "What does he say? Amen. Come and see, come and see, just come check it out." And of course, Jesus meets him. And he says, "Behold, an an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit." And Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. I'm sold. All right? And Jesus said, Because I said to you, I saw you on the tree you believe, you will see greater things than these. Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. I mean, you're gonna your mind's gonna be blown what you're gonna see. Now, I want you to understand that this is Jesus' starting five. Just like a basketball team. You have your starting five. This was Jesus' starting five. And he all gave them the invitation. The invitation was to come and see. Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Uh, And so they began to follow Jesus for the next 18 months. I'm going to write this down. 18 months they began to follow Jesus. Jesus took them on a roller coaster ride. During these eighteen months, Jesus takes them to Cana. You know, they 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 were down in. Uh, this is uh, this is my really bad picture of Israel. Okay, so there's uh, the Dead Sea. There's Galilee. There's the Jordan River. Uh, there's Mount Hermon up there. Is Jerusalem? You know, over here, uh, they're baptizing down here. They're baptizing just north of the Dead Sea. Jesus lives up here, you know, right? Uh, Capernaum is right there. Nazareth is over here. So they come back up to their home territory. And then he takes them over to, uh, Cana, which is somewhere right around there. And there he turns water into wine. He, he, uh, shows them a, a tremendous miracle. And it's there it says that they began to believe, right? They begin to see this is not just a man who's, who's saying that he fits the messianic thumbprint. This is a man who has unusual power. He's not a normal man. Then he goes from there, a short little trip over to Capernaum, and then they go all the way back down to the Passover. They would travel all the way down uh, the Jordan uh, Valley, and they would cross over at Jericho, and then they would make their way up to Jerusalem. That was the normal route uh, that they would take. They get to Jerusalem, and what does Jesus do? He turns the... Money changers over craziness. Who does this kind of thing? Right? And, uh, and then he has this conversation with a man named Nicodemus, and he's telling Nicodemus, who's part of the Sanhedrin, one of the most powerful, educated men that they know, you must be born again. Don't you know these things? Who is this man that says this kind of thing? And then when their heads are still swimming from, okay, turn this over and he just, like, talk straight to one of the most powerful men. Then Jesus decides to go back, but this time we're not going to go back down through the Jordan Valley. This time we're going to go straight through what? Samaria. Samaria. Nobody goes through Samaria uh, for two reasons. One is topographical. You don't go through Samaria because there are tremendous hills and valleys. I mean, it's just not practical to go up and down. And, of course, the second reason is because Jesus, what? They hated Samaritans, right? But it's there that he encounters this woman at the well. And he has this encounter with her. He says, I have, "If you ask me for water, I give you water that would give you eternal life." And she has this exchange, and, and he, she says, "Well, when the Messiah comes, he'll make all this clear." And he said, "You're looking at him." And so she runs back into the town. And what does she say to the village, or to her village? She says, "Come and see this man who told me everything I ever did." Again, come and see. Come and see. You know, Jesus takes him back up uh, to uh, their hometown again, and there he meets a man who is uh, uh, a nobleman who has a son that is sick, and Jesus heals him. Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and he's rejected in Nazareth, and they're trying to throw him off a cliff. But all these things happen. In this phase, Jesus is encountering all different kinds of people, religious and irreligious, Jew and Gentile, um, uh, People that that are close to God and people who are not close to God, uh, skeptics and seekers, all different kinds of people, and yet all of them get this same invitation to come and see, explore the claims of Christ. Just come check him out. Come check him out. So the first step in in a disciple making process is to invite people to come and see. Okay to engage people in their spiritual questions to help them to taste and see that the Lord is good to reach out to people Jesus is going to people here he's inviting the dialogue and the discussion as a discussion with a woman at a well he has a discussion with Nicodemus either way he's having these spiritual conversations He's coming to see come and see come and see come and see okay so this first stage is what we call the explore stage and that is that you must be engaging people who are lost. This is on this side of the faith line. Okay? This side of the faith line. So, let's just stop for just a second. And I want to give you a chance to talk about this. How well are you doing as a church in engaging people that are far from God? How well are you Having conversations with both the religious lost and the irreligious lost. What are you doing? Are you doing anything that is intentionally for the, pro- you have any program that's intentionally designed to do this? If the answer is no, then what should, what adjustments would need to be made? If the answer is yes, what is it? Okay? Take a minute to talk about that with your neighbor. Okay? Ready to go. Just for fun, how many of you, just kind of by a show of hands, say, "Man, we have some program that is primarily focused on uh, stage one." Raise up your hand. Okay, good, good. So we got got a, got a good number. All right, so we're going to talk about programs in just a minute. I'm just kind of laying the foundation. Then we're going to get have that fun experience of how you evaluate your programming. Okay, uh, but stage one is come and see. 18 months. The main verse is John one thirty nine. That's uh, that's the first, and you think about eighteen months out of a three and a half year ministry. That's almost half, you know, of of Jesus's time. So even though these are like kind of the same uh, spacing, that's not necessarily the chronology the way it's spaced out. I'm just making a note of that, uh, but highly important. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. This is the front door. Um, All right. The next next phase is what we would call uh, what I call the connect phase. The connect phase, and that is, you know, we're trying to connect people to. Uh, Christ you know they were calling them that would come and they've seen and you want them to cross the faith line into this next phase that's what baptism is about remember I baptism about identifying with Jesus identifying with Jesus's people and so you see this uh, in Mark in uh, Matthew 418 so check that out Matthew 418 we've already uh, been there and alluded to that but Matthew 418 Jesus said while walking, or about, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and followed, uh, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, Here's an aha moment. This is not the first time they met Jesus. I, I told you the first time they met Jesus is down here, right? At Bethany beyond the Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea, John 1.39. So Matthew 4, 18 and 19 is the next pivot point, and that is at least 18 months later. So they've been coming and seeing Jesus for a while. They have been fishing, and following, okay? They've been, they didn't give up their day job, but they've been hanging out with Jesus, they've been watching Jesus, but then they go back and they work and they've, they've kept the, their job, okay? And mostly the work that their father taught them to do. Most of the, uh, I don't, I don't want to run down this trail, but most of the disciples were probably teenagers, with the exception of Peter. Peter was, uh, most likely the oldest, he was married. Uh, there's some other evidence to the fact that he was probably older, but the rest of them were probably, you know, 18, 19 years old, something like that. And so they were still working with their dads and learning that trade and that sort of thing. And so they've been following Jesus, but now this is different. the 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 commitment level is going up here. Here there was like very little commitment. Just hang out with me. Come and see. Check this out. Now he now the key phrase is follow me. And, and this means something different. This, this is a level of commitment. This is a decision that they're making. Okay? And they are, they're making a decision to follow Jesus. Uh, Dr. Michael Wilkins, who wrote a great book called Following the Master, highly recommend it. It's been out for a while. Following the Master by Michael Wilkins. It's a biblical theology of discipleship. It's really, really good work. Um, he said this, The call at this stage meant a commitment to Jesus personally. It also included in some sense of joining with Jesus in his announcement that the kingdom of God had arrived. In other words, somehow they're going to personally commit to Jesus in a way that causes them to leave their boats, leave their income, leave what they've always done to give their full attention to following Jesus. That's why they left their nets and followed Jesus. is such a big deal. They're following this rabbi. They're going to be under the tutelage of this rabbi. Now, what you see here is uh, following this, Jesus uh, leads them to basically shadow him. By the way, this is going to take place over the next six months. So over the next six months, they're going to shadow Jesus and follow him and watch him do ministry. Okay? And they watched him. This is mostly found in Luke chapter 4 and 5. So you can just put Luke 4 and 5 and you can see what he does during this time frame. Okay. But one of the first things he said after Follow Me is he cast a demon out of a man that was in the synagogue. The second thing he does is he heals Peter's, mother, Peter's mother-in-law and then there are many people that come out and he spends all night healing people. The next thing he does is that he goes to the, the, the shoreline and Peter's been trying to fish all night. Remember, the fish would come up at night and that's when they'd fish. The fish go down during the day because it's hot and they haven't caught anything. And Jesus said, put your net on the other side. And of course, they have this miraculous catch. And this is when Peter falls to his knees and says, forgive me, I'm an unworthy man. And what does he say, Peter? Follow me. Okay, Peter, I can take care of you. Peter, I got this. I'm calling you to this commitment, this personal commitment to follow me. After that, uh, they see Jesus heal a leper in Luke 5.12. They see him forgive a paralytic in Luke 5.17. They see him reach out a tax collector named Matthew. They see him wrangle with the religious legalists that hated it, that Jesus was having a Matthew party, and Matthew's friends were coming to hang out with Jesus. Right? All this is happening right here. In fact, uh, Uh, Dan Spader likes to say, "These are Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And these were his six fishing expeditions. His six fishing trips. But all the while, what is happening is these guys have left. They've made a big commitment. They have left their source of income. They've left their identity as their job. They are now identifying with Jesus. They're identifying with each other. They're identifying with the cause. Now, they're not doing a lot. They're mostly shadowing. Jesus right they're not doing a lot of him but they're there they're engaged that people see them as Jesus's followers and they're they're in the mix and they're watching Jesus and they're a part of the cause okay so when we talk about connecting uh, as we apply these things there are a couple of connection points that I that uh, we try to see in this from a church leadership standpoint number one is we want to help people in this phase connect with Jesus Okay. So we want to help them make sure that they've crossed this faith line. I mean, you've at some point you can come and see all you want, but at some point you have to make a decision to follow Jesus. Right? I mean, you can come and see all day long, but until you, there's a time to make that decision to follow Jesus. And that was a big decision for them. It was a personal decision for them, and it's a decision that we all have to make. Second thing is to connect uh with the church. And I would say through baptism and membership. The reason why I get that is because these disciples are connecting. Uh, they're publicly identifying with Jesus and with the followers of Jesus. They become identified as the followers of Jesus. Later on, they're called the disciples, right? So they're clearly identified publicly as the followers of Jesus now. They've left their nets and they're following Him. The third thing is to connect with other believers in community. So I'm going to put connect with community, because not only are they following Jesus, but they're beginning to connect with each other. They're going to camp out together. They're going to walk together. They're going to work together. They're going to experience this whole journey with Jesus together. And I'm sure there was friction uh, probably between them from time to time, you know, Jesus probably had to say, "You know, Simon the Zealot, you stop arguing with Peter about that." You know, they got into political wrangles. They got into all kinds of things about that. But they're learning to do life together. And then the last connection is connect with a cause. They're going to connect with a cause that is they're starting to identify now with the cause of Jesus. Now they're they're just getting their feet wet. They haven't not really doing a lot in and of themselves. But they are definitely connecting with uh, the cause of Jesus. Okay? Now, at our church, we've said these are this is how we know someone is connected. So think of it as four legs of a chair or a stool. If a person has connected with Christ through salvation, we'd say they have one leg down. As far as connection. If they are connected to Christ and they have been baptized and they've joined the church, then they've got two legs down. If they've connected with Christ and the church and they're in some kind of group, if I could put three legs down with having one leg up, right, I would do that. Then we say they got three legs down. But if they are connected with Christ been baptized in the church, they're in a group and they're serving in some capacity, then we say... They've got four legs on the ground. They are connected. How many times have people left your church and said, well, I just never felt connected? Don't you hate that word? All right. I used to go, man, what does that mean to not be connected? So this is how we defined it. If, they're, if they've got these four legs down, they're not as likely to leave because they are fully connected here. See, see what I'm saying? So, so getting them through this connection point is really, really important. Now, what I want you to see, so I'm going to use a different color here is a big warning. I'm going to draw this line here. This is a big warning. Warning. This is where most churches stop. They feel like, man, if I can get someone saved across the faith line, and they come, go from a come and see to a follow me, and they join the church, and they get saved, and they get into a group, and they serve... Yes. If we can get them to give a little bit, even better, right? And we have what we, we can sit back and relax because our job here is done, right? Wrong. There are still two more phases to go. And if this is the end for you, if this is the, the end product for you, is just to get people saved in group and serving, then you're never going to get to multiplication. This is just halfway through it. Jesus is now two years into his ministry, just two years into it, okay? By the way, another thing I like to say about this connect phase is this is the comfortable phase. Everybody loves to be in here, right? Because, man, you're in a group, you're serving, you love your church. It's very comfortable. Yes, there's commitment to get in here, but once you get to this phase, we tend to like to stay in this phase. I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute, all right? So let's talk about that in your church. Uh, do you have a way of connecting people? Do you have groups that you, they can experience community? Do you have a way where people onboard into your church? Do you have a way that easily helps people become baptized? Do you have a way that easily assesses whether they know Christ? Are there, do you have a way, how do you help people start serving in your church? All right. Talk about that for just a few minutes and just kind of brainstorm. What are you doing? And kind of learn from each other. What are the things you're doing? What do you think you're doing? Alright? Ready to go? Okay. All right, everybody. We're about to get to the really good stuff now. Alright? Alright, here we go. This is most churches in America right here. Are, uh, most churches in America are are in the you know. Trying to get through stage two, but there are still two more to go, and this is the last two stages are what brings multiplication. Okay? So let me give you what those are. Okay? Next one is found in Mark 3, 13, and 14. That's the next pivot point. Mark 3, 13, and 14. Uh, this happens after six months. This is going to be another six month uh, stint here of training. Mark three. Flip it over there, thirteen and fourteen. Jesus says, and it says, and He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay. So what is happening here? The key phrase. This one was, "Come and see." This was, "Follow me." This next one is, "Be with me." So what Jesus does is after. A course of time, of of raising the bar, and now they're committed. They're connected with him. Now he's going to raise the bar again. Okay, he's going to raise the bar again, and now he's going to carve out some of those emerging leaders. Some of these people that are really pop—we call them poppers at our church. People, you know, they they pop. You know, they get it. They're hungry. They're after more. They're 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 spiritually eager and seeking. Uh, he carves those out. And he is going to spend time with them. Now, here's an interesting stat. From this point forward, Jesus spends four times as much time with the few that he does with the crowd. Isn't that interesting? Four times as much. This is Now, this is the two-year mark, right? This is two years. So his last remaining year and a half or so, Jesus is going to spend an incredible amount of time investing in the few. He's going to invest in the few here. And he's going to train them up. From six to nine months or so, they become his top priority. He teaches them about the kingdom. So this is where the Sermon on the Mount... But it's, What's interesting is a lot of the teachings of Jesus explode here in this phase. So the Sermon on the Mount uh, is at that phase. Isn't that interesting? When you read it, you think, "Well, wow, he just started preaching that right off the beginning. No, that was actually the inauguration message, the ordination message for these ones that he was training. Uh, he begins to preach about the kingdom. All the parables begin to explode. Jesus here begins to demonstrate his power. A lot of miracles begin to explode. His power over the natural elements—walking on the water—is par- his, his power over the spiritual world—the uh, casting out demons, his power over sickness and death. All, all these are exploding here during this time. After six or nine months, his disciples are about ready to fly solo. So in Luke eight. He goes with his disciples on a tour, and then on Luke nine, Jesus sends them out on their own. Okay, so Luke eight, they go out kind of. Jesus goes with them, and Luke nine, he begins to send them out on their own uh, to preach in the villages and teach and have authority over demons. And they come back and they report. Luke nine ten, it says they report everything that has happened. And so, so there's excitement here. Jesus is training them. So what's happening here, just put down the word train. They're training here. They're equipping. This is a very intentional process. Jesus is teaching them how to preach. He's teaching them how to pray. He's teaching them how to confront legalists. He's teaching them how to deal with the demonic. He's teaching them certain skills that he's trying to reproduce in their life so that when he's gone, they can keep doing it. Does that make sense? So think about uh, uh if you're a electrician, you're a master electrician, then you will take on an apprentice and you will teach that apprentice. They will follow you, they will do what they they will try to do it on their own. That whole process, uh, and so that they've got those skills down. Uh, if you are a, a um, if you're an investor, you're going to train under a master investor till you get the competencies down. The same thing is happening here. Jesus is equipping and training them with reproducible skills. Does Jesus teach them everything they need to know? Yes or no. The answer is no because at the very end Jesus says there's much more I could tell you and the Holy Spirit's going to have to make that clear to you, right? So they didn't know all the depths of theology here. They didn't know, they they frankly didn't even conceive the cross at this point, right? But he is teaching them reproducible skills and he's working on their character, who they are. He's spending time on and offline with them and working on their character. So so here uh, is where we talk about character, and competencies. Character, I already said, has to do with who you are on the inside. Through the Spirit is a great place to start. Competencies have to do with the skills that are necessary to reproduce. Now you say, well, what skills did he train them in? I'm going to tell you, at our church, this is how we worked on it, three basic categories. One is he taught them how to walk with God. So that is, he taught them in prayer, He taught them the word. He taught them the prophetic, you know, the prophecies that are fulfilled, these types of things. How to walk with God. He taught them how to reach their world. So, how to do evangelism, how to preach the gospel, how to go out and share the gospel. And he taught them how to invest in a few. Because that's what they're doing. And they're learning how to invest in a few. How did they know how to do it after Jesus was gone? Because they had. They're just doing what Jesus had done to them. all right. So Jesus is training them in this phase. Think about somebody that joins the military. Maybe they, they, they come check it out for a while, then they finally make the big decision to join up. They get their hair buzzed, they get their new uh, outfit, they get a new change of where they're going to live, and so on. But if you enculturate if you inculta- uh, uh, them, in the culture with the haircut and where they live and the language, but you never train them how to fight or never train them how to shoot a weapon, and you send them onto the field, what's going to happen? He's not going to last very long. She's not going to last very long, right? They, the military understand that they spend immense amount of time trained, 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 train, so that it becomes like muscle memory when it, when it really counts, Jesus did not skip this process either, but churches do it all the time. We, inc- we incorporate them, hey, you're one of us, you start listening to Christian music, you've got, bio- got a big Bible, you can starting to go to group, maybe start to serve a little bit, and then we want you to go out and multiply yourself, but you've never really been trained with the character to sustain you, or the reproducible skills of how to share your faith, how to walk with God on your own, how to sustain yourself spiritually and keep yourself healthy over the long haul. And what happens? People burn out. They implode. Their character becomes revealed. They crash and burn. And we go, oh, man, that's too bad. That's on us. That's on us. I I I talked to a guy not about last month. He was a pastor. Came to Christ. Never really got to this went to straight to this, grew this large church, has an affair, ends in shame, out of the ministry. It's just sad because we're skipping over this very critical piece. And this is what Titus 2 talks about. Older women, you train the younger women how to love your husbands and your family and walk with God. Men, you train the younger men how to do this. This is This is the spiritual parenting that Jim was talking about today. Where you have to go life on life, men with men, women with women, for the purpose of training for multiplication. This is what, uh, John Wesley did, you know, when, uh, when Wesley, uh, really began to see uh, the movement of God happen in Europe. They were, uh, England was really on the cusp of falling into chaos, just like the French Revolution happened, which was a bloody, nasty, horrible, demonic, awful thing. And But they said the one thing that probably kept them from falling into that was the influence of John Wesley and George Whitfield. But what Wesley would do is he would go out and he would preach to the coal miners that would not come to church. He went, go, come and see, hear the gospel. Those that wanted to come to Christ, he would help them cross the faith line. He would get them into large gatherings called societies or two or 300 mixed group worship and teaching the Bible. Then he would... Put them into what he called classes, which was smaller groups of 15 to 12 people that were mixed groups for encouragement and accountability. But then those that were really popping, he would move them into what he called bands. Bands were few, like three or four men, three or four women together for the purpose of training them to walk with God and reproduce. And those were the leaders he would send out to plant churches. And he did that all across Europe. And he changed the culture. Where did he get that? He got it from Jesus, right? It's, it's Jesus' model. If you follow St. Patrick, I, I, I am pushing hard for St. Patrick's Day to be the national disciple-making holiday. All right? <laughs> It should be the National Disciple holiday. I think at the National Disciple Forum, we should just make a, an edict or a forum or you know a declaration the Saint, that St. Patrick's Day is at. Because if you read this, and I don't have time to get into St. Patrick, but you just need to study him for yourself. And you see the miraculous way that God used him. But when he began to reach the people of Ireland, how he would gather them together, he would get them in groups, and then he would train a few men, men and men with men, women with women, and send them out to multiply and plant churches. It's the exact same model. This is what, uh, what we call the 3C model, where you talk about celebration, where everyone gathers together for worship. Then community, where you're, you're experiencing some of this community element. But then core, where you train people. This is where your leaders come from. I don't know how many pastors go, man, I, don't, I just don't have any leaders. I don't have enough leaders. Guess what? You can't just always steal them from the next church, right? <laughs> I mean, we do do that, don't we? But you've got to build your leaders, and this is where you make them. This is where you make your leaders. You train them, and they will be fiercely loyal to you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He trained them in character, and he trained them in competencies of how to walk with God, reach the world, and invest in a few. Okay? Okay, for the sake of time, I'm not going to let you huddle up this time, because I I, want to press through the last one, and then get to the big aha reveal. Okay, at the end, all right? Y'all with me still? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Y'all are doing great. I know it's warm, but y'all are doing awesome. Okay. So here's the last one. The multiplication phase. Uh, by the way, we call this the grow phase. Uh, the grow phase because we're helping people grow spiritually, grow up. Really is what we mean. <laughs> Not just grow, but grow up. Uh, to be mature, self feeding, godly men and women that don't don't need a program. They don't need the next program rollout to hear from God. They're not depend. They're not a, a program addict that needs their next fix. Because you'll find people that go to Bible study, Bible study. I'm going to five Bible studies, man. Enough with the Bible study. You need to be trained on how to read the Word on your own and hear from God on your own. So if we don't train them, they don't know how to do that. Right. The last one is. Uh, you know, we just use the same word here: multiply. The multiplication phase of it. After Jesus had spent another six uh, to nine months with them, then Jesus uh, begins the multiplication stage, and this takes place in Luke, uh, Luke nine, nine twenty-three. Luke nine twenty-three, where Jesus is. Um, let's just look at that right quick. This is now about nine months, by the way. this is about nine months left until his crucifixion. Clock is really ticking down at this point. Uh, Jesus said they'd already seen the feeding of the 5,000, and then this is right around his transfiguration. and he says, "If anyone would come after me." Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You can continue to read there. But the key phrase here is come after me and bear fruit. Come after me and bear fruit. At this point... Jesus begins to very clearly turn. It says three times that He, from this point forward, tells him, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried and raised back to life. Three times He overtly, clearly tells him what's going to happen. It says He set His face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He is up here around Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the mountains right there by Mount Hermon. He is going to start moving down toward uh, Jerusalem. And he's moving about, you know, the last nine months is a push down uh, toward uh, Jerusalem. And there Jesus is calling for sacrifice and self-denial and suffering. Sacrifice, self-denial. You deny yourself, deny your selfish ways and suffering. It's interesting when you start to look at what he says in these last nine months, there's a lot of that. This is where those hard sayings of Jesus come into play, where he says, If you don't hate your mother and father, you're not worthy of me, and if you don't hate your life, you're not worthy. All these statements, they're loaded not on the front end, they're loaded on the back end, okay? Because here he's upping the commitment level again. In fact, I want to show you something right quick. Hit a little pause button here. Looking for my green marker. Here it is. You could draw a line like this across these phases and it would be really interesting. Think about um, the bottom half of this line represents the commitment level. Very low commitment here. More commitment here. You've got to commit to follow Jesus. Even greater commitment to be trained, high accountability, but an even greater commitment to multiply because it requires self- sacrifice, self-denial, and suffering to put your selfish ways aside to give yourself to the mission and invest your life. Okay. But you can also look at the top part of this line as how many people are willing to go to that level of commitment, a lot of people are willing to explore, not many people willing to commit to Christ, even fewer that are willing to be trained, and even fewer that are willing to multiply. However, I will say this: this little triangle right here, this is the tip of the spear. These are your leaders that are going to be moving the ministry forward. These are your church planters. These are your next uh, staff members. These are your next elders and leaders. These are your next small group leaders. These are the people that are with you. They're in it. We've cut our wrists. We've bled together. We're in this together. We're hair on fire committed to the cause. You say, man, I want some of those. Well, you've got to build them right here. You build them right here. And that's what Jesus did. He built them right there. And ultimately, he sends them out. Uh, to multiply. And I love this in, uh, in Luke chapter uh, 10. He sends them out and they do begin to multiply. In Luke 10, just look at it. Just Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead, two by two to every town and place where He Himself was about to go. So He's pushing down toward Jerusalem and now the 12 have become 72. Well, where did these other 72 come from? Well, I believe they came from the 12 that were, you know, these were people that were gathering, right? They were gathering around Jesus. And these 12 now begin to influence them. And so the 12 multiplied to 72. Now, I've had one guy that's a scholar and and has written extensively on movements. He goes, well, you can't prove that the 12 multiplied to 72. And that's true. I cannot prove it. But it just makes sense to me. It just makes sense. These people were in queue. These people were ready to go. And so now you see the 12 multiply to 72. And so they're moving on ahead of him. He's moving into the area of Perea, which is outside Jerusalem and uh, Israel. And then he's coming back in. He's going to start heading down. This is where he stops at Bethany, where he's anointed. This is where he meets uh, 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 Zacchaeus right here. And Zacchaeus comes to faith in Christ. All that stuff happens as he's marching toward Jerusalem. But here's a great thing on what you see. The 12 turn into 72 in Luke 10 verse 1 and then you look down at verse 17 it says the 72 return with joy saying lord even the demons are subject to us All right so they come back these 12 now multiplied to 72 so you have 12 now are 72 and they're going out and they're finding others right so you went from Jesus to the 12 to the 72 to others that's called fourth generation movement see that Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also Jesus to the 12, to 72, to the others also. And so when they come back and they say, Lord, the the Spirit of God is moving in our life and, and people are coming to faith and the demons are subject to us. Look at what Jesus does in verse 21. Luke 10, 21. And at the same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is the only place in the Bible where it overtly says Jesus was filled with joy. Why was Jesus filled with joy? Because the movement was now unstoppable. They say when you get to the fourth generation, you can't stop it. The the train was already moving out. The movement was already beginning. So now He could focus clearly on the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In John 17, verse 4, in His high priestly prayer, He said, I've glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work You gave Me to do. He said, wait a minute, Jesus. You had not even gone to the cross yet. But he's accomplished the work. Well, what was the work that he accomplished? It was, yeah, making disciples that will multiply. That work had been done. He said, I have accomplished. That word accomplished is the same word he used on the cross later when he said, It is finished. It is accomplished. So Jesus had accomplished the work of a movement. Now he was ready to go to the cross so that he could empower them by the Holy Spirit, Acts 1 8. Uh, yeah, Acts 1 8. Then to multiply around the world and this is how multiplication happens. So all right, we're running out of time. Uh, I promise the big aha moment, okay? Does this make sense to you? Does this make sense? Okay, so most churches stop right here so we never we never get to multiplication because we don't do the training phase. Men with men, women with women. This is the spiritual parenting part. This is the piece that we typically talk about when we talk about making disciples. But really, disciple-making is the whole thing, right? And then when you launch out here, then those disciples are making disciples. Really, there are three ways to multiply that we talk about in our church. One way is personal multiplication. That is, I discipled somebody, and now they've discipled somebody. Okay? That's personal, life-on-life multiplication. That's awesome, wonderful, incredible. We just went to uh, our church, and Zach was part of that team that about nine, ten years ago went to Zambia. They they trained, they discipled 13 pastors. Today, those 13 pastors have turned into over 5,000 followers of Jesus. They multiplied rapidly. See, that's personal multiplication. Another way you multiply is what we call group multiplication. So you have a group leader that's a disciple-maker. Guess what they're going to do in their group? They're going to look for people that are popping. They're going to pull them aside. They're going to train them. And guess what that person is trained to do? They not only can disciple someone else, but they can also lead a new group. So how do you get new group leaders? You disciple them. But you, if you don't have a disciple-maker as a group leader, then they just just trying to look for somebody to take their place, but they don't have the character or the competencies to really sustain it long-term. And then the other kind of multiplication is what we call church multiplication. And that's through church planting, that's through multi-site, that's through replants, or whatever uh, that may be. Those are the three types of multiplication that happens. Okay, So, let me try to land this plane. I think I've got about three or four minutes Okay, to try to land this plane. We've talked about the pro, uh, the the end goal is a disciple. The product is a disciple. The process is explore, connect, grow, multiply. So now what you have to do then is you have to evaluate your programs to fit your process. Got that? If you don't have an end product, any program will do. But if you have a clear end product, then you will say no to some programs because they distract from the process y'all with me on that so uh dan spader did a a, i think in his dissertation he surveyed a hundred churches hundred churches and he said i want you to take this grid he had a similar type of grid uh hull's got a similar type of grid we all have a similar type of grid because we're all reading the same book all right and um Uh, Dan said, I want you to take your programs and try to slot them in the slot of its primary purpose. Now, this is very important, what I just said. Primary purpose. People go, oh, well, we got one program and it does all three of these. No, it doesn't. There's only one primary purpose. So it forces you to think about, okay, what is our primary purpose, right? And so they've slotted them in a slot. Okay. For example, he said, tell me about your programs. They said, well, we do worship on Sunday. Oh, that's great. Worship on Sunday. What do you do? Well, what do you do there? Well, we, uh, believers gather together, they worship. They read the Bible, they pray. because goes, awesome. That's pretty much building the believer, right? Yeah, that's probably helping connect people. All right, so they do worship. All right, what else you got? Well, we do Sunday night worship. Oh, awesome. What do you do on Sunday night? Well, we gather believers together, we worship, we read the Bible, and we pray. Uh, okay, well, that's kind of like this, so we do Sunday p.m. What else you got? We got men's breakfast. Awesome. What do you do with that? Well, we gather believers together, we read the Bible, we worship, we pray. Okay, well, that kind of men's Bible study. What else you got? We got women's Bible study. Awesome. What do you do with that? Well, we gather women together. We read the Bible. We worship. We pray. Women's Bible study. You get the point? What he said is that out of all those surveyed, 100 churches surveyed, 87% of the churches had all their programming right here. All of them. In other words, they had no intentional primary purpose programming to reach the unchurched, none to train, and none for multiplication. All of them were right here. I'm telling you, every church that I pastor, when I do this, and we say, okay, plot your programming, which we do now on a regular basis, every year, before we set goals or anything, we plot programming again. It started off the same way. Chances are really good that on the average majority of your churches will have a far majority, if not all, of your programming in this slot. And so when you talk about programs, then you need to assess where your programs are. And then you need to start uh, slowly beginning to create programs here that help you explore. And you create opportunities here for Men with men, women with women, to train them to multiply. Identifying your tools, which we'll talk about that tomorrow. If you stick with me tomorrow, I'll dig into that a little bit more. And then multiplication. Sorry about that. And so this is how you deal with programs to process. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, I think I'm past time.
0: You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.